All right. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you see that of ourselves we have no strength. By your mighty power, defend us from all adversities that may happen to the body and from all evil thoughts that may assault and hurt the soul. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, questions about the Ten Commandments, the Law, or the Word? Every word can work two ways. Um, the Law and the Gospel is also the Law and the Promises. Two doctrines of Scripture, but not two components. If it's two components, then it's like, you know, Lego blocks. They can click together, but at the end of the day, they can still come apart because it's two different things. But they aren't. Law and Gospel are two doctrines uh, of the same word. And this word works two ways. It's the double-edged sword. It can cut one way and it can cut another way. It's the line at the Grand Canyon. You're either following the rules and are on the good side or you're not following the rules and you're on the other side. And the same word takes on a different meaning depending on what side of the line you're on. Um, so there's a law way that a word can be used, and there is a gospel way that a word can be used, and, and the word of God works that way. Whose job is it to determine how the word of God needs to be used, generally speaking? This is something that we talked about last time. Like, for example, when the pastor's preaching a sermon, Whose job is it and whose responsibility is it to make sure that the hearers are receiving exactly what they need to hear? Yeah, it's the Spirit's job, actually. We Often Lutherans will talk about the pastor being the one to determine or to discern or divide law and gospel, but in reality it really isn't the pastor who does that. Remember the example that I gave is, if you hear a sermon and, it, and you say to yourself, wow, this really is convicting me of something. Uh, I don't know how pastor knew that I was struggling with X, Y, or Z, but somehow he really hit the nail on the head. Well, it wasn't me, uh, really. And likewise, somebody can, else can listen to the exact same sermon and walk away going, oh my goodness, that was such a comfort to me. That is exactly the kind of comfort that I needed to hear. Not... Uh, not the hammer that's pounding against the sinful heart, but instead something that's uplifting. Well, I'm preaching the same sermon. It's not like I'm preaching two different sermons, but somehow the word that is being preached and proclaimed is being used in two ways, depending on who, the, who is hearing it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who knows the heart and who knows what the heart needs. Uh, again, that's why no pastor can ever really take any credit for the sermons that they write, because it isn't the pastor who writes the sermons. Um, not really. It's the Lord who uses that word and who works. That's part of what the pastor prays before every sermon. If you pay attention, the last stanza of the hymn, when the pastor gets up, and I say the pastor because that's sort of a general thing. Typically, you'll see the pastor get up and do something like that. Um, it's what I do too, but you see the pastor go up to the altar and kneel and 
say a prayer. That's one of the things typically that a pastor would pray for is that the words that he preaches um, will be used by the Spirit in the way that only the Lord knows is needed. Um, so really what the Ten Commandments do is they show you how to stay put. That's the best thing that they do. They show you how to stay put. And where are you to stay put? Well, in Christ. We've gone through baptism and confession and all of this, and the Ten Commandments are there to say, hey, here's where you are now. This is your new life. This is what the new life looks like. Hey, why don't you stay here? And when you don't stay there, they say, uh-oh, that's really bad. This is what's going to happen to you if you keep walking this way. And they're not j just arbitrary, as if the Lord wants to say, I want to see you all not covet. Wouldn't that be a fun thing if we just made, we, we told them they weren't allowed to covet? Well, we'll see how they do with that one. No, it's nothing is ever arbitrary. It's always there for a purpose. And um, so you're not dancing monkeys or bears that the Lord wants to jump through flaming hoops in some celestial circus. There is a reason for all of the commandments being there. And really, it's the same. The, the reason that you have the commandments, the ten words, is the same reason that you have the rules about not drinking bleach under the kitchen sink. Because doing that is bad for you. Because coveting is bad for you. Because pursuing evil incarnates evil. Doing evil incarnates evil. And that is something that's horribly bad for you. And something the Lord doesn't want for you. So really, the ten words are there for your protection. So the idea that, well, the law is bad and the gospel is good doesn't really fly because the law is good too. And if you don't believe me, just read, take the time sometime to read Psalm 119. Pray Psalm 119. You don't read Psalms, you pray them. Pray Psalm 119. The entire Psalm is about, Lord, I love your law. How can you pray a Psalm that says, Lord, I love your law, if the law is supposed to be something that's bad, if the law is supposed to be something that's frightening? So how do you make the law not frightening? By uh, fearing God? Well, sure, you fear God. Uh, this all comes back to something that I said last week. What is the law always going to do? You can never get away from it. It'll, it'll always do this to you. Accuse you? Correct, yes. The law will always accuse you. So there will never be a time when you look at the Ten Commandments, just as an example, and you look at the commandments and say, boy, I feel really good about myself. I didn't do any of the things on this, this list. And if you feel that way, I have something to give you that will really make you rethink your attitude. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so there will, there will never be a time when you can look at the law of God face to face and say, hmm, I've kept this 100%. And for that reason, because you are a sinner, I mean, the law can be your best friend, uh, but because you're a sinner, it's always the enemy of sin. So it, uh, the law will always accuse you of your sin because it accuses sin wherever it sees it. But what will it not do? It'll always accuse, hey, you did something bad. Condemn? Yeah. Yes, but it will not condemn. And that is how you make the law not as frightening, not as fearful, not as bad. Because it's sure it's going to accuse you, but it can't condemn you. Why not? 
You know, the law says, hey, well, if you do this, then you go to hell. And you say, okay, well, you can tell me when I've done it wrong, but you don't get to tell me that, I've, that I'm going to hell because of it. Why? Why is it impossible for the law to condemn you? Born and saved. Yes. Can you, can you rephrase that? You're correct. But can you rephrase it in a way that uses the word condemnation? <laughs> um, let me ask a better question. How is it that you are saved? Jesus died for our sins. Yes, and what happened to Jesus when he died for your sins? He was resurrected. Well, that was, that was after. Okay, he takes the sins to the grave. But what, cu what cup does he drink? The cup of, yes, the cup of divine wrath, and divine wrath always brings condemnation. condemnation. Yeah, this is, so you're right, Greg, you're right, 100%. You had to lead us through that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You just didn't, you didn't say it the way that I wanted you to say it, because I wanted to have that language of condemnation. The law will not condemn you for your sins, because your sins have already been condemned in Christ. Christ took your condemnation. So if Christ has already borne the full condemnation of the law, what more condemnation can the law offer you if you're in Christ? None. I mean, it can spit and sputter and tell you you're a sinner all that it wants, and it should, really, because well, you need to hear it, frankly. But it won't condemn you because the condemnation's been taken in Christ. That's part of what makes the death of Christ such an important thing. The baptism of Christ, too, because he's baptized into your sins. Your baptism is a washing away. His is a getting dirty. It's almost like it's backwards, because you go into the water and all of the dirt and grime and soot that's on you gets off of you and flows into the water. When Christ goes into the water, he sucks up all of that dirt into himself. He takes all of your grime and then he takes it to the cross and he bears the full condemnation for it. So the law is kind of toothless for you in the sense that it will accuse. But it's also really good for you in the sense that it tells you how to stay put. It, it shows you what's good for you and what's not good for you and it encourages you to stay where the Lord has put you and on the way that the Lord has put you. That's, that's the language of the apostles, the language of the way. And it's something that I really like. You're put on this way and you're baptized into a new life, which means that you have to uh, live this life. You have to walk on the way, which means a Christian is never static. Faith isn't static, it's in motion. That's something we talked about way back a few weeks ago when we talked about the nature and character of faith. Faith is never static, it's in motion. Uh, okay, so this is kind of... That's all about the law in that sense. Any, any questions about any of that? Okay. You are allowed to ask questions. <laughs> uh, today, then, what we're going to do is we're going to talk, this is kind of part two, talking about the Word. And if you, if you want a roadmap of where we are in the liturgy, uh, last time was basically about the readings and the sermon. And today is all about the creed.
The creed's a really, really big, important thing. And uh, so we have, you see by the stack of papers I have here, we have a lot of things to talk about when it comes to the creed. So uh, really where the creed begins is baptism. And we confess the Nicene Creed, or if you want to be really pompous, you can say the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, because it, it was a creed that was started at the Council of Nicaea and completed at the Council of Constantinople between 325 and 381 is when that creed was really codified. So really pompous people say, well, it's not really just the Nicene Creed, because it was also Constantinople. <laughs> but, uh, hey, listen, I won't condemn you for saying Nicene. Okay, but we say the Nicene Creed on Sundays when we have the Eucharist. <coughs> Do you know why? It is confessing our faith, yes, but the Apostles' Creed does that too, Heath, so why bother using the long one when we could just use the short one? Because you're also bracing your heart. <laughs> well, sure, but the Apostles' Creed does that one too. Any ideas? What's the difference in some of the things that are confessed, or rather the language that is used? Do you ever pick up on that, the difference between... Uh, how you're saying things in the Apostles' Creed versus how you're saying it in the Nicene. The thing about the Nicene Creed is it is a Eucharistic Creed. So we confess it anytime we have the Eucharist. The reason that we say it is a Eucharistic Creed is because it's a Creed that is really all about Christ. It's a Creed that's all about Jesus. And the reason for that is because if you're looking for a quick and easy creed, it's actually in the back cover of the hymnal. You don't have to, you don't have to look through the liturgy. You can just open up right up to the back cover. Yes, look, see? The Cheater's Guide to the Hymnal. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, um, it was a creed. They, they started using this creed uh, because of a heresy called Arianism, and Arianism was started by a guy named Arius who said, hey, whatever the Father is made of, Jesus is not made of the same thing. Um, because Jesus really isn't, you know, the begotten Son of God. He's just another created Son of God. And he's called the Son of God, but he's someone that, that God just made and created. And the Christian church said, well, now, wait a minute. If that's really what you believe, that tears apart just about everything that Christianity confesses. So they flushed out the Apostles' Creed with the Nicene Creed to confess some very specific things that were against the idea of Arianism. So you can never confess the Nicene Creed and say, hmm, Jesus really isn't the Son of God. He was just some guy that God made. And if you have trouble with that one, then the uh, Athanasian Creed, uh, that big two-page long creed, that's the one that you use. And actually, Athanasius, that creed was written against Arius as well. So that's the creed where you really 
Your hands are tied. You can't walk away from that creed and say, well, Jesus was just created. And actually, we're going to look at the Athanasian Creed in just a little bit because there's some important stuff in there. But the Nicene Creed is a Eucharistic Creed. It's all about uh, the nature of Christ. And it confesses all the same things that the Apostles' Creed does. It just does so with less brevity. Uh, brevity is good because it's quick, it's easy to remember. Uh, and that's why the Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed. We confess the Apostles' Creed at baptisms, and then you continue daily to confess, as part of your devotions, the Apostles' Creed, because that's the creed of your baptism. That's the, that's the entire Christian faith in that one little creed. And uh, so it's simple, it's easy to remember, it's something you take with you. But also with brevity comes room for misunderstanding. When the entirety of what you believe is condensed into a few lines, there's room for question and error, or there is the possibility, I guess you could say. So the Nicene Creed is longer and it expands on certain elements of the Apostles' Creed so that there can be no doubt about what you're confessing. They confess the same thing. So does the Athanasian Creed. Okay? So you confess these creeds. Uh, why do you do that? And really, this is, it, gets, it, it goes back to baptism and to the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, because what is the church's job? If you remember, this is, this is weeks and weeks ago that we talked about this. The church's job, you look at the Great Commission, and it's really something that's given to the church, not just to, hey, all of you people go out and do this. It's given to the apostles, to the church, a job for the church, baptize and make this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. What is the main job there in that command? What is the church to do? Make yeah, exactly, to make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Well, it's an easy two-step process. You baptize and you teach. That's it. Go and make disciples. Well, how do we do that, Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them. So the creed is on this side of teaching. Because you're baptized, so you're in now. Hey, welcome to the family. You're, you're part of the family. But uh, now we need to do some teaching. And this is part of the teaching here, what we're doing. Confessing the creed is also part of that teaching. And, and this is something that you do for the rest of your life because the teaching that goes along with your baptism is something that doesn't ever end. That's why my joke is that when you're confirmed, which you three will be, and um, you know, just as a reminder, confirmation doesn't mean all of a sudden we flip a switch about communion where once you couldn't have it and now all of a sudden you're good to have it because you passed some tests. And it also doesn't mean that now you're old enough and smart enough that you don't need to study anymore. Boy, I'm glad that I'm confirmed because I don't need to come to Bible class or go to church anymore because I, I went through those classes with pastor and I know it all now and I feel really good about it. Well, that's not actually it at all. So the joke is that Confirmation is like your graduation ceremony and you're going from preschool into kindergarten and then you live the rest of your life in the faith in kindergarten. <laughs> you never quite make it out of kindergarten purgatory. See, I told you we believe in purgatory. Kinder kindergarten purgatory. <laughs> 
All right? So that's kind of what confirmation is. So you never stop learning. And one of the ways that the church continues to teach you is through the use of the creeds. Um, so, of course, the, teach, the church teaches through the liturgy, through the gospels, through the preaching of the word. Um, the word, you know, and we're, we're talking about the word, the law and the gospel, the uh, readings, the sermons, the creed, all of the liturgy teaches. I mean, everything in the sanctuary teaches. The design of a church is, to, is supposed to be something that teaches. The art of the stained glass windows is something that teaches. The arrangement of the chancel is something that teaches. How the pastor walks, how the pastor talks, how the pastor dresses, what the pastor does. Every tiny, minute thing teaches because that's what the people of God need to be taught. Luther himself even said, every single Sunday I preach justification by faith because every week my people forget it. <laughs> because uh, that's just the way people are. You constantly need to learn. That's why you never make it out of kindergarten in the faith. <coughs> even the most advanced theologian is still in kindergarten. So think about that. Uh, and here's what it looks like, okay? Here's what the teaching of the church looks like. I'm just going to jump to a few places. You don't have to come with me. Acts 2, 40 through 42, And with many other words, he, that is Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. There it is. See, there's... The, uh, the preaching of the gospel starts to create that little spark of faith, and faith always takes you where Jesus is, which means that when you have that spark of faith, you must say, I want to be baptized with the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? Please, if the Lord promises what he says he promises, and I've heard the words preached, I know what he promises here. I want that. And faith says, go get it, go get it, because that's going to make things good. So here it is. They heard the gospel and they were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And after their baptism, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That's the teaching. And fellowship in the breaking of the bread and in prayers. That's going to church. That's why online church will never, ever ever, ever be a substitute. Not even the Lutheran hour? No, it's never a substitute. <laughs> it's fine, but how do you have communion with the body, fellowship with the believers in the body, and the reception of spiritual nourishment in, in the Eucharist by sitting on your couch in your pajamas watching church on TV. I mean, it, it doesn't happen. So the idea that, well, we don't have to get together to be the church is kind of a ridiculous idea, really, because that's what the church is, is the gathering of these saints. Now, you can, be, you can try to be a, a Lutheran about it, and you can say, well, but the, the Augsburg Confession says that the church is a people. And it's not a building, it's the people. And I say, okay, sure, fine. You want to say it's the people, that's fine. But what do the people do? 
Because you can't be the church if you're going to say, well, the church is just people who believe in Jesus no matter where they are and no matter what they do, which means that I can sit on my couch eating Cheetos and that'll be just as good for me as uh, the person who decides to go to church because it's all about my relationship with Jesus, right? Just me and Jesus. He, my old buddy, my old pal, he and I walking down the road of life, just the two of us. But it isn't just the two of us. <laughs> That's the whole thing. When you're baptized, you're brought into a body with many members. You're brought into a community. That's what the church is. It is a community of believers. It's not just believers wherever. It's a community of believers, which means that they have to congregate. Yes, Heath, you have a question. I have a question about communion. Why do we have communion every day now and whenever I was younger, we used to have it just some weeks? That's a really good question, Heath. And I'll talk more about that when we talk more about communion. But here's the short answer. The Lord's Day is about the Lord feeding you. And the Lord wants to feed you on the Lord's Day. That's what the third commandment is all about. It's, that, it's on that handout that I gave you last week about the, the flip side of the third commandment. It's not, you better get to church. It's, hey, come here. I want to take care of you and I want to feed you. The Lord wants to give you His body and blood. Here's the other thing. How often do you eat a meal during a normal day? Yeah, how often do you have a meal? Meal? Yeah. Two times. Two times a day, okay. How often do you sit down and have a snack or run to the pantry and grab something? Yeah, okay, that's what I thought, maybe. Okay, so you, and now multiply all of that by how often you eat during a week. And that's what you need to live. If you don't eat, you starve. Now think about what is the body and blood of Jesus? Well, okay, sure, but uh, it is food. It is spiritual food. Christ says, whoever does not eat of my body and drink of my flesh has no life in you. Hey, you're hungry. If your body hungers, don't you think your soul hungers too? So every time the church gathers together, this is what the apostles themselves said to do. Every time the church gathers together on the Lord's day, you should have the Lord's meal because that's what the Lord wants for you on his day. Because the Lord's day is all about the Lord serving you. That's why the service is called divine service, not worship service. It's divine service because the Lord comes to serve you. The divine comes to serve you. He's like a waiter. Heath. When you come to church, you sit down and you know that there's going to be a supper and the Lord comes up and says, well, today I'll be taking care of you. Can I start you off with some confession and absolution? Ah, yes. Wonderful. Now hear are some of my words. Here today's entertainment. It will be good for you. Now here's the main course, the body and blood. And now you're full up and strengthened to go out and continue living like a Christian. Okay? So that's the short answer. The long answer is really long. Too long for today. <laughs> so, all right, the creed. So yeah, they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, which is also a noun, which is the didache. So that's one reason why I'm big on the didache, because if you want to know what the actual teaching is that they devoted themselves to, it's that book, the didache. Okay? So, the church always teaches. But what does the church teach? Something that changes or something that stays the same? Mm. 
Changes or stays the same? Yes. Good work, Heath. Good answer. <laughs> yes, it's something that stays the same. That's why you should always beware of a church that touts themselves as being a very progressive church. Hey, we're a really progressive church. You should come join us because we're progressive. Ooh, if they're progressive, they're not the church. So those are really harsh words. But the fact of the matter is, the church is not about being progressive. In fact, the church is very anti-progressive because the entire point of the church is to look back and to keep trying to go back to the crucified Christ and what he says and what he does and what he teaches, not looking ahead away from him about what can we do differently and better and what kind of changes can we make. Hey, we're really proud of being progressive. In fact, we've started doing all kinds of things that no other church would let you do. I don't know if that's something to be proud of. If you're in the minority and you have to sell yourself by all of the cool things that you let people do that the other church, the other church, stuffy old churches don't let you do, you're maybe not really selling yourself as the church. You're selling yourself as, at best, some kind of entertainment corporation. Really, that's the truth. The church is not progressive. The church always teaches the same thing. So, that thing that we teach is not based on personal opinion. It doesn't change with the times. How you present it maybe changes. Like, I'm sure in the Apostles' Day, they didn't have live streams or nice paper handouts. But I'm teaching you exactly the same, the same thing that the Apostles taught, just in a slightly different way. The means change always, but the content never does. So this is what we're going to look at here. This is the, um, the Need for Creed handout, if you're watching online. Need for creed. Um, the pure teaching of the word is safeguarded by the creeds. So you can't look at the, at the Bible and then believe that the Bible says whatever you want it to say. You see this? These arrows are your interpretation. Now there's room between the confessions of faith and the creeds. Uh, there's room in there to move around a little bit. But in between those two pillars, you can't get past them. They are walls. Which means that at the end of the day, if you... Oh, what can I say that's not going to be inflammatory? Oh, this is probably the least of inflammatory thing I can say. And I don't mean any offense, but it goes like this. If you open the Bible and you say, Hmm... Jesus says, this is my body, and he says, the, the food that, and, and drink that you, that you eat and drink is my true flesh and blood. Um, but he couldn't possibly mean that, because it's not flesh and blood, it's still bread and wine. Well then, um, that must mean it's just a symbol, or something that stands in for it, and it really isn't the body and blood, and that's my interpretation. If that's what you confess, it isn't, you know, Jesus says, this is my body, and you say, no, it isn't. Which is the most uncharitable way of presenting that possible, by the way. Then you're actually going against the historic confession of the church. For 2,000 years, actually. Well, no, 1,500, we'll say that. 1,500 years, the church said, this is the body and the blood. 
And then a few reformers said, I don't know if that's really what it is. I guess 1,500 years of church history and the apostles and Jesus were all wrong because a couple guys from Switzerland decided that they were. Okay, so this is why creeds and, and confessions of the church are so important because they safeguard. So you can have very, there are differing interpretations of scripture, certainly, but the interpretations of scripture must fall within the guidelines of what the confession of the church actually is, because you can't look at scripture and use scripture to make a confession that is not in line with the confession of the church. Then it's not a confession. It's an opinion. And sorry to be harsh with you, but I don't really care about your opinions. The moment that you walk through those doors, you leave your opinions at, uh, on the doorstep. You can pick them up when you leave, but your opinions don't matter here. Who you vote for doesn't matter here. What your opinion is on certain political issues doesn't matter here. I'll commune a Democrat and I'll commune a Republican. I don't care who you are when you're at the altar. I, can, I care about what your confession of faith is. Which is why you know, something like abortion is a big deal too, because the church historically has a confession that says this is, this is murder. Which means that if your opinion is something different, I don't care about it. All that I care about is what the confession of my mother is. Because that's the confession that I make, and that's the confession that I teach, and really the, conf the confession I submit to, and that's something we'll talk about in just a second here. So the historical documents don't replace the Bible, which is some of our evangelical brothers and sisters say, well, but uh, I just believe the Bible. I don't believe the creeds. I believe the Bible. And then you have to sort of sit back and go, oh, but the creeds are the Bible. Everything that the Bible teaches is boiled down to a couple lines in the creed. When you confess the creed, you're just confessing, confessing succinctly everything that the Bible has taught about, specifically, Christ. Which means, what are the creeds all about? Only one thing. Death and resurrection. Everything the creeds confess is the entirety of Scripture from death to resurrection. Think about that the next time you confess the creed. It's all about death and resurrection. Okay? Um, so, yeah, look at this here. On the other side, interpretation without the, his without the history of the confessions of the church means that you can believe whatever you want. And that's the truth. If you don't have a creed, you can believe any doggone thing that you want. And if you're believing whatever you want, are you a part of the church? No. If the church says the sky is blue, and you say, I'm a Christian, but the sky is definitely not blue, it's purple, then are you really a part of the church? This is how the church speaks. If you don't speak the way the church speaks, then you need to re-examine whether you are considered a part of the church, because the church is within these two pillars. If you're outside, somewhere out there, I don't know that you can really say that you're inside and outside. Okay? So this is the importance of the creeds. Not as a replacement for Scripture, but as a succinct confession of what Scripture actually says. 1 Corinthians 11:12. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them. If you think that the church is progressive, this is going to shatter your world. Keep the traditions. What is a tradition? 
sure, yes, it's something that you continue doing for a long time. The literal word in the Greek is a word that means passed down. So when Paul says this, all of the things that have been passed down, the traditions, just as I delivered them to you, all of the teachings of the church and all of our confessions, just as I have delivered them to you, this is the truth. 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Do you see that? I delivered to you the same thing that I received. That's what I'm doing. The apostles received something. They kept it up. They passed down what they received to, to men who passed down what they received, to men who passed down what they received. And it goes all the way down the line. That's how the church works. Continues passing down what they have received. That's what I'm doing to you right now. It is as if the apostles are standing right in front of you telling you exactly the same things that they taught all of their parishioners in the first century. Because the paradidomy, the traditions, all of it has been passed down. The church confesses the same thing. That's why it can't be progressive. Therefore, brethren, 2 Thessalonians, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Whether we were there teaching you in person or whether we just sent you the epistle, that applies to you. 2 Timothy, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Okay? It's all about this passing down. It's important. Um, here's something I'm going to give to you, and we don't really have a whole lot of time to look at it right now. This is called... Oh, actually, I have two things for you. Um, this is uh, this, the Nicene Creed. It's from a bulletin at another church. And they... Just put scripture by every single line. Every single line that you confess in the Nicene Creed, um, there's a reference. So if anybody ever comes to you and argues that what, you know, they say, I believe in the Bible, not in the creeds, or I won't be tied down by something that was written by man. Well, then you first say, okay, well, then I guess you throw out the entire Bible, right? Because that was written down by man. It's the word of God, but it was written by man. You're going to throw out the entire gospel. Oh, well, no. I mean, that's the word of God. But the creed isn't the word of God. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, because the word of the church isn't the word of God. Okay. Well, let's take a look at this for just a, a minute. And then you tell me what in the creed is not the word of God. Well, you know, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Okay. Neither is the word rapture. That's an uncharitable argument. And it doesn't hold a lot of weight. Just because of the, the word for a concept isn't in the Bible doesn't mean that the concept isn't in the Bible. The Trinity is in the Bible, but what do you call a unity of three things? Trinity. That's a word for it. Just because the word doesn't appear doesn't mean that the, the idea doesn't. And you know, with, with having kind of a deep and rich history in the evangelical free bodies of churches, I get kind of frustrated with the argument that, well, we won't be tied down by the writings of men. And again, I say, okay, well, then the, you've got to throw out the Gospels. You've got to throw out the whole Bible. You're not going to be tied down by the writings of men. Oh, but we're talking about the creeds. Okay, you're not going to be tied down. Well, I want to be tied down. Because if I'm not tied down, then I go wherever I want, which is bad for me. 
this you see in this diagram. Where do you go if you're not tied down, if you're not blocked in by these confessions of the church? Wherever you want. And historically, that is where the evangelical free churches have gone, wherever they want, wherever the wind blows, whatever will make people happy and comfortable, even if it means compromising the teachings of the church. You want to marry 12 women? Well, I mean, okay, I guess. Um, you do, should we support same-sex marriage? Well, you know, I guess we should, probably. I mean, I know that the Word of God says, maybe says that we shouldn't, but there are, you know, I, there are ways to interpret that where it does. Well, then you look at it and say, then you're just, then you're flying wherever you want to go. You, you don't want to be tied down. Well, the church does want to be tied down, and the church wants you to be tied down because the church wants to build on a foundation. The church wants to build on a rock. The church doesn't want a house that's going to fly away with a thousand balloons popping out of the chimney wherever it wants to go. The, word of, or the church of God wants to be built on this rock that is Christ and the confession of Him and not to move, which means you want to be anchored, tied down, which is exactly what the creeds and confessions of the church do. Okay? So that's just for you. Here's another thing that's just for you because we don't have the time to look at it. This is something called Letters from Sotome. I'll give you the rundown while I hand it out to you. The first question you need to ask yourself when you look at this picture is, is this the Buddha and his mother or is this the Madonna and the Christ? And the story behind this is that... Um, in Japan, Christianity was persecuted in, the er in its early days when Catholicism came. Pretty, uh, pretty heinously persecuted. So the church went underground. And they uh, were not very well educated. They didn't really have a good... They, they were not catechized well enough to really know what the faith was or what the creed meant or what the Lord's Prayer was. And over time, you know, when Christianity became legal again, the Christianity that emerged was unrecognizable. It wasn't Christianity. It was a hybrid between Buddhism and Christianity because they didn't have the creeds, because they went away. They believed, you know, they tried to remember the very best that they could and do everything by memory and without really having solid grounding and, and a solid creed, it became something else. This is what happens. This is why a creed is so important, because it tethers you, it, it holds you down. If you, so, you know, so maybe you don't remember every single passage of the Bible in order ver, uh, by heart. Harsh judgment from me, I think you're a bad Christian if you can't do that. That was a joke, by the way. Nobody is going to remember the entirety of Scripture. You're never going to remember the whole thing cover to cover. But, you do know the creed. And if you know the creed, you know the entirety of what the Bible confesses. Which means that when somebody says to you, Jesus was just created, he wasn't really the Son of God, and you say, well, I, something's wrong about that, and I can't think of exactly the Bible passage, but I know that the creed confesses that he is. Then you look at the creed and you say, so why does the creed teach this? Well, here's why. So the creed is always tethering you back to the word of God that the church upholds and the teachings of and about Christ. You see how that works? So that's why the creed is so important. That's why it's the Apostles' Creed is part of your daily devotion. 
Um, that's why we do it always before midweek. Uh, it's such an important thing for you. It's one of the things that I will do when you're on your deathbed. I don't, know, I don't care if your eyes are open and you're responding to me or not. I will still go and I'll still confess the Apostles' Creed with you because faith comes by hearing, not by intellect. I don't judge your faith based on your intellect. I don't judge your faith based on your physiological responses to external stimuli. <laughs> okay, well, I should have gone into medicine. Um, all right. Faith is a personal thing. This gets back to something that I said before. Faith is a personal thing, but it is not a private thing. Faith is not about your walk with Jesus. That's something, if, the, if you think that, I want you to get rid of it. I want you to flush it down the toilet or throw it out in the garbage. Faith and Christianity, being a part of the church, is not about me and Jesus, buddy, buddy, walking together. Just the two of us. Just the two of us. Okay? It's about the corporate body. You're brought into a community. It's about the personal aspect that Christ has died for you. I mean, the, the body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Yes, it is for you. But it's also for all of the other people down the line. And all the other people sitting in the pews. And all the people who've already gone up to the altar before you. Okay? It's a corporate thing. This is part of why corporate worship is important, because the body must gather corporately. Uh, so it's not, a, it's not a private thing. It's a personal thing, yes. Christ comes to you. But, uh, but it's not about you. Again, it's not about you. I can't tell you how much it's not about you. It's always about Christ for you. And then you become a part of the body, and it's a humbling thing. So this is a really, really, really important concept, and we're going to highlight it with a story. One, two, three, four, five. Which some of you may have already heard, because I think I've used this in Bible class before. This is a story from a man named William Willimon. Willimon is a liturgical scholar. I believe he is an Episcopalian and Anglican. Uh, in a church history course in my last year at Dale Divinity School, at, excuse me, at Yale Divinity School, the professor invited an Orthodox priest to lecture. He gave a rather dry talk on the development of the creeds. At the end of the lecture, an earnest student asked, Father Theodore, what can one do when one finds it impossible to affirm certain tenets of the creed? The priest looked confused. Well, you just say it. It's not that hard to master. With a little effort, most can quickly learn it by heart. No, you don't understand, continued the student. What am I to do when I have difficulty affirming parts of the creed, like the virgin birth? The priest continued to look confused. Oh, I love this story. You just say it. Particularly when you have difficulty believing it, you must just keep saying it. It will come to you eventually. Exasperatedly, the student, a product of the same church that produced me and a representative of the 1960s, pleaded, How can I, with integrity, affirm a creed in which I do not believe? 
It's not your creed, young man, said the priest. It's our creed. Keep saying it for heaven's sake. Eventually it may come to you. For some it takes longer than for others. How old are you? Twenty-three? Don't be so hard on yourself. There are lots of things that one doesn't know at twenty-three. Eventually it may come to you. Even if it doesn't, don't worry. It's not your creed. At that moment I realized what was wrong with much of the education I had received. A light shone. I got saved from the sixties. I thanked God that in my ministry I was not being left to my own devices. I did not have to think for myself. Saints led the way. As a theological educator, I need to recover a sense of myself as accountable to the church rather than subservient to the academy. I need to listen to the church more carefully than to the alleged issues of the day. Only then might we as leaders of the church be given the grace to allow our people to rise above the merely contemporary and to engage in critical thinking worthy of the name. Theological education begins by being formed by the saints. And you are formed by the saints in the words of the saints, which is the creed, speaking the same words that all Christians before you have spoken. The reason that I love this story is because of the reality that it brings. The creed is not about your intellectual affirmation. When you come to church and it's time to confess the faith, you don't say, I believe and mean I personally have sat down and studied and thought an awful lot about and am smart enough to think that I realize that the things I am about to say are true. That isn't what you're saying. You're not speaking of your own accord with your own mind and with your own intellect. You're speaking with faith. So what if you don't believe the virgin birth? That's, that's always... That's always the biggest thing in the creed. Well, I don't know. I don't know about the virgin birth. That seems like kind of an impossible thing. What if you what do you do if you have trouble believing the virgin birth? Just say the creed, dummy. Just say the creed. It's they're not your words. They're the church's words. Your mother's going to take care of you. Saying the words is part of how the church teaches you. It's not your creed. It's not about what you think. So the confession is not, hey, you know, the, the, when you come to church, the church doesn't say, hey, what do you think about, what do you think today? What do you feel like today? Uh, what do you believe about God this morning? Anything different than, than last time? Oh, it's different. Great, let's hear it. No, the church says, hey, listen, um, are you one of us? And you say, I don't, I don't know, am I one of you? And they say, well, let's confess the creed. Say, oh, okay, you're one of us. Are you one of us? Do you abide here? Are you in Christ? The creed is the thing that says, yes, I am. What you think and what you feel is going to change. Daily, actually. What you think and what you feel will change daily. If your faith and your confession is rooted in the things that you think or the things that you feel, well, I don't know. You know, I used to think when I was a kid that the virgin birth could happen, but now I'm an adult and I know how things work and I don't know about that. Um, if, it, if, if your faith and your confession is rooted in what you think or you feel, you'll never make a good confession of faith. Never. Because it's always going to change. So the church says, 
the words of what Jesus says about himself, which is, that's what the creed is. What does, what does the Lord say of himself? The Lord doesn't change, and the words of the Lord do not change, which means the confession about the Lord doesn't change either. So what do you do if you have trouble believing certain parts of the creed? You just keep saying it. It's not your creed. This is the issue, right? Because most people think, well, it says I believe, right? So that means that the creed is part of my affirmation of faith. Except it isn't. The creed is not your affirmation and it's not your assent. It's your submission. Confessing the creed is you submitting to the words of another person. Which means that even if you disagree with it, confessing it is you submitting yourself to that teaching. I don't understand how a virgin birth can take place, and I'm the pastor. You want to sit down and have a conversation with me about how somebody can give birth, um, conceive and give birth only by the power of the Holy Spirit? It's going to be a woefully disappointing conversation because, newsflash, I don't have any answers. I don't have any answers about that. But we confess in the creed with the words of the church, the virgin birth, because that's what the Lord has said of himself. That's what the Lord took upon himself. That doesn't change. Progressivism changes. Progress being progressive is all about changing with the times. That's, I mean, that's kind of its shtick. Being a progressive church means you change with the times to meet the current demands. But the, the reality is that the current demands of the church always ought to be the same. Are you a sinner in need of absolution? Yes. Are you a hungry soul in need of the body and blood, this heavenly meal? Yes. Are you somebody who doubts and is in need of a reminder of the faith? Yes. Hey, confess the creed. It's not your creed. It's not your words. Faith isn't about your, your you know, private relationship with Jesus where you can say about him whatever you want. It's about this corporate body and the corporate body speaks. Okay? That's really important. In fact, the words of the creed used to be we believe. The original Latin and, and Greek of the creed was we believe because you're confessing as a corporate body, not I believe, as if it's my personal confession because it's not your personal confession. Or maybe it is. Maybe that is your personal confession, but I don't really care about what is your personal confession. I care about the confession of faith, which is a corporate thing. Okay? So creeds are prescriptive because they tell you what to do and a good example of that is the Athanasian Creed, which I wanted to spend more time on, and we just don't have time to do it. But you can look at it on page 319. Okay. Whoever desires to be saved must, above all, hold the Catholic faith. There it is, plain and simple. Whoever desires to be saved must hold the Catholic faith. All right. Uh, that's, that, that is submission right there. Or do you want to be saved? Well, yes. Here's how you be saved. Well, I don't believe in the virgin birth. Well, just keep saying the creed. Submit to this creed and that's fine. Okay? You submit to it. It's not about your opinions. It's about submission, which is a really big thing. People don't think about the creed that way. Every time you say the creed, it's submission. You're saying amen every time you say the creed to something Christ has already said about himself. Instead of saying, well, but Jesus, I know you said that, but I don't really understand how that can. He says, I don't care if you understand. This is how it happened. Just say it. Come on. Just sit back. It's going to be a fun ride. Trust me. I'm never going to hurt you. 
Okay? So it's prescriptive. It tells you what to do. Above all, must hold the Catholic faith. There you go. But it's also descriptive. It tells you, well, what does the church look like? What does the church say? What does the church do? Well, this is what it looks like. This is what it says. This is what it does. So it's descriptive in that it shows you what all of this stuff is, which also means that if you are outside, if the church walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, and you oink like a pig and walk like a pig, Mm, are you really considered part of the church? Because the church looks one way and you look a different way. You see how that works? So if your confession is different than the confession of the church, you need to reevaluate if you are actually part of the church. Because the church, the creeds are descriptive. They describe what the church looks like. You can't look differently than the church and then still say that you are the church. Which is another reason why these are so important. Okay? So, um, Here's the thing. This is also why a lot of people don't want to, to affirm the creeds. Because the reality is that when you confess something, when you stand firm in believing one thing, when you affirm one thing, it means you're also standing opposed to another thing. Which means that the creed is not only a positive thing, it is a negative thing. Because the creed tells you things that you can't confess. And there are a lot of things that people want to confess that the creed says you can't confess. And that means that the creed makes enemies because of the fact that it tethers you. But the fact that it tethers you is what is so good for you. Okay? This is um, what I'm handing out here is a, some, an extended quote from um, a fellow named Yaroslav Pelikan who was a Missouri Synod Lutheran. He worked on Luther's works, and then he ended up converting to um, Eastern Orthodoxy. But he wrote a lot of really good stuff, specifically on the creed. And he has an interview, and that's a, just a really good quote from the interview. But it's an extended quote of what I'm about to read to you here. Okay, this is what he says. What is it about religious faith? And this is not on your handout. Your handout is just kind of for you to take home. It's an extension of what I'm reading. What is it about religious faith that needs creed? Or excuse me, what it is about religious faith that needs creed is that religious faith in general, prayer addressed to whom it may concern, sentiment about some transcendent dimension otherwise undefined does not have any staying power. It's okay to have that at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning when you're out with your friends somewhere, but in the darkest hours of life, you've got to believe something specific. And that specification is the task of the creed, because much as some people may not like it, to believe one thing is also to disbelieve another. This is what I just said. To say yes to one thing is also to say no to another. This is one reason why the creed is so important and why it's not as popular. Um, the other thing that is in your handout is that he says something about the creeds being the answer to the eternal question in every time and every age, who do you say that I am? That is really the most important question of history and the most important question of Christianity, the question of Jesus to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Pardon me? The pastor that you are. Oh, no, I mean, Heath, this is Jesus' question. Yeah, Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And I'm saying that Jesus' question is just as important to you right now, today, 
as it was to the disciples. Heath, it's like Jesus is standing right in front of you and he says, Heath Beerman, Heath Otto Beerman, who do you say that I am? And how do you answer that question? God. Well, sure, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. See, that's how you answer it. That's why the creeds are so important. And that's why they can never be progressive. Because in every time and in every place, the question still remains, who do you say that I am? And who you say that Jesus is ought to be exactly the same in the year 2021 as it was in the year 100. And that same confession ought to be the same in the year 4500 as it was in the year 2021. Because the answer to the question, who do you say that I am, has already been given by Jesus. He said, this is the thing, Jesus is the greatest cheater on earth. Because he asks you all kinds of questions, and then you stop and think, and you have to consider how to answer his questions, but the cheat is that he's actually given you all of the answers already. Who do you say that I am? God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Hey, good, that's an A plus for you. Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question, okay? Who is God? Well, God cannot be an abstraction. Remember, I, God can't just be some spiritual thing. You can't just walk around going, oh, it's so nice, God's with us everywhere, and I you know, can't wait to see him someday, and blah, blah, blah. It's like... Okay, sure, God's everywhere, but, the, but God has also, he works through means that there is a physical place where God is physical and interacts with you. You go up to that altar and you, and you, hold, you put your tongue out and the pastor puts that bread on your tongue. That's you interacting with the Lord. I mean, that's the Lord touching you. When you go to a confession and absolution, the pastor touches your forehead and makes a sign of the cross. That's the Lord touching you. Oh, isn't it great that he's a God of spirit? Ah, but he took on flesh, though. How does a spirit die on a cross? He didn't give up his flesh when he ascends into heaven. How is he going to come back? He's going to come back in the same flesh, and you're going to be able to look with Thomas at the nail marks in his hands and the wound in his side. Still, the holy scars that his flesh bears are the, the preaching and proclamation of the gospel to you. You see this? So he can never be an abstraction, and he's said that himself, because he has chosen to tie himself to realities. God wants to be real for you, which means he has to interact with you physically. Okay? So, why do the creeds matter? Well, because the gospel matters. Who do you, who do you say that I am? That, does that question still matter today? You know, look at the world around you. Look at the country. Look at the direction that the country's going right now, and the things that the country likes. You're going to hear it in... I'm going to warn you right now, the sermon for tomorrow is a heavy hitter. A real heavy hitter. And you're going to hear this tomorrow as well. But America is not a Christian nation. Far from it. America is a pagan nation. We are pagans in this country. And you are a minority. You're living among pagans. You're like the Israelites in the land of Canaan right now. Child sacrifice, burnt offerings, and witchcraft are around you. You are the minority. Look at this world and tell me that the question, who do you say that I am, of Jesus, doesn't matter. 
Because everybody else is telling you a different answer than the answer Jesus has already given you. And that's a problem. Okay, so the creeds matter because the gospel matters. And the creeds seek to preserve the teaching of the gospel and the integrity of the church. Two, the creeds tie the faith of the church into historic continuity. Things like rose from the dead according to the scriptures. Say, this really happened. What the Bible says really did happen historically. There's continuity there. It is also the... Um, the, there's the theological reality and the historical reality. So like uh, the name Pontius Pilate in the Creed, and, and which by the way, when you, if you look at the Nicene Creed, if you watch me, I bow at, uh, at uh, he descended from heaven and then crossed myself at and was made man and then quickly come back up. And the reason that the church does that is the church bows for the humiliation of Christ and you make the sign of the cross at and was made man because Christ is in your flesh. And where did Christ enter your flesh? Well, in baptism. Okay, so there's the tie in there. But then you can't stay bowed when you say the name Pontius Pilate. So you quick, come, you pick quick pop up before you say Pontius Pilate. But the fact that his name is mentioned in the creed is a historic event, a historic person. It's a tie-in. There's continuity there. Okay, so you're confessing a historical reality, saying this really did take place in history, but you're also confessing the theological reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, and there's spiritual realities there too. And then you're also tying the church into its own historicity, the confession of the saints, how many Christians before you have confessed this creed, said exactly the same words that you are saying? Countless. So, you know, the creed is a great picture of what the definition of the church really is when you say something like with angels and archangels and with all the saints of heaven. Uh, because all of these people have made the same confession and now you are making it too. Yes, the church is this thing, this collection of this giant community that transcends all of space and time because the people who came before you say the same words that you now are saying. And that's sort of a humbling thing in and of itself. Who cares if you have trouble affirming the virgin birth personally? An infinite number of people before you have already had that trouble and still confess the church because they submitted to the teaching. I know that what I think is this. And I know that what the church thinks is this. So the question is, am I going to tell the church that it has to think what I think? Or should I maybe re-examine myself and think that I should think what the church thinks? That's the question. Am I going to assert my will over the church? Or am I going to submit to the will of the church? Creeds are submission. If you confess the creed, you submit. If you don't, you're progressive. Because you want to impose yourself on the church, which is bad. Okay, and lastly, creeds set the church apart from the world, which is what you want. Creeds ensure that the church is otherworldly. Um, everything that takes place in the church, in that sanctuary, I, I say this a lot, but you cross the threshold into the sanctuary, you're in a different world. Time doesn't work there. The cardinal directions don't work. You're facing west when you start walking into the church, and the moment that you walk into the sanctuary, bam, you're facing east now. The altar's always east. 
whether it's really facing true east or whether it's liturgical east. Ours is liturgical east. But when you go in that sanctuary, that's east. I don't care what your compass says, that's east. Directions don't work. Time doesn't work. Nothing is the same in that place as it is outside. And that's the way it has to be. That's one reason why I'm so big on making sure that people are quiet in there. Because when you walk into that space, it's not the same space that's out here. It's not a space for getting together and laughing and chumming around. It's a, it's a sacred space in a different world, in a different time. It's, you're going through a portal to the gate of heaven. You are as close, to, as close to the courts of heaven as you can possibly be there. And the creeds affirm that. That you are not a part of that world. You're in it, but you're not of it. The creeds define the church as being otherworldly. So then if you start changing the creeds or you decide you don't want the creeds because you want the church to say something that's more in line with what the world says around you, how are you being otherworldly? Then you're, you're letting the church be sucked down into whatever the culture around it believes. And that's not what the church is to be. The church is always at war with the culture. That's not a new thing. The Christians, the early Christians were put to death because they were not in line with what the culture had. And you'll hear more about that tomorrow. There's a real special reason for it tomorrow too, by the way. Tomorrow is the observance of, or the commemoration of saints Perpetua and Felicity, two of my favorite saints, martyrs of the third century, or fourth century in Carthage, two women put to death. Okay, so all of this stuff matters. So here's the question then. And this is where we'll leave. Can you tell that a church is a church based on what it looks like inside, specifically the sanctuary, how people behave, and what they confess. Those are the things that pay attention to. So when you walk into that sanctuary and you sit down, and you look around, and then you hear the confession of the people, and you look, and you see what's going on, and you see how people are behaving, can you tell that it's a church? Because if you walk into some of these places and there's no confession, and and by that, I mean a, a confession of faith, like you can, no confession of the creed or some weird, weird um, um, misworked creed. That always makes me mad when people, even in the Missouri Synod, try to be cutesy about the creed. Well, well, we'll say all of the same things that the creed says, but we'll reword it and make it a little more fun. No, then you've just completely destroyed the creed. Don't try to be cute. So can you tell that it's a church? And you walk in and hear the confession and see what it does and see what it looks like and smell the smells and see the acts. Can you tell that it's a church? Because the creed wants you to be able to tell that it's a church. Okay. Um, any questions? If you only walk away with one thing, this is what I want you to remember. The creed is submission. Confessing the creed is not about saying, I individually believe. It's about saying, I as a member of the body believe. Saying the creed is saying, or confessing the creed is saying, it is the church's words and the church's will that I submit to. Not saying, I confess what the church says insofar as it is in keeping with what I think. Or even worse, saying, I don't believe any of that. I want the church to say what I think. So confessing the creed is submission. And I want you to think about that the next time you confess the creed. 
that when you're saying that, it isn't really so much your personal affirmation as much as it is the corporate voice of the church Catholic speaking in one accord. Okay? Which is, honestly, that's kind of a cool thing. Sort of like singing the Sanctus. What you need to start doing when you sing the Sanctus is thinking to yourself, well, he says, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, and guess what? I'm, I mean it. That when the Sanctus is being sung, angels and archangels and all of the company of heaven are right there with you singing that. Think about how humbling that is. All the saints who have gone before you, all of these, all of these angels and archangels and all of this host of heaven around you singing the Sanctus at the Lamb's throne. Whoa. Boy, it blows you away. All right, any questions? Oh, I gave you the opportunity. I get nervous because, you know, you don't ask questions. And I, I, then I don't know, are you really getting this? Are you just afraid? Do you just want to, you know, cooperate to graduate? <laughs> so, all right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.